It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. And welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, uh, bonus episode. Uh, this is Mark. And this is Ben. And uh, we are not talking about Moby Dick today because we're taking a little bit of a break from talking about Moby Dick. Um, instead, we're talking about the movie Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Uh, which it has boats in it. Yeah, it's it's very much a boats movie. It's all it's, about It's really sailing. boats. I'm, I'm very, I was very happy with it. I was very happy about how much it was about boats and uh, that there was a boat in it. In fact, there were multiple boats in it. Quite a few boats, really. Yeah, um, it was it was it was sailing content heavy. Um, should we? Should, do you think we should? We didn't talk about this beforehand, but do you think we should like read like a plot summary of it? There's a pretty detailed one on Wikipedia, actually. Um, there but... is. I think that. Um, I think that we could just get away with uh, very you know very broadly des- describing uh, what occurs in it because one thing I noticed is that while it does have a plot, it's really not a, pl- a particularly plot-driven movie in how it actually functions. Like, it really does mm. feel like... I mean, I mean, first of all, it's a, you know... I actually don't know if this is adapting a specific book, but it's set in the general series of the Aubrey and Maturin uh, book series, of which the first is uh, Master and Commander, um, which are... Uh, I mean, very popular sailing books. My grandparents on my mom's side actually loved these books, like read every O'Brien book uh, about tall boats that exist, tall ships that exist. Also, I, I have a bad habit of using boat and ship interchangeably, but that is strictly incorrect, completely <laughs> technically wrong. A boat is like the, in, in this context, a boat is the small dinghy or rowing boat or even potentially sailed rowing dinghy, um, which, you know, is a lot of adjectives, uh, that you launch off of your ship, which is your full-sized boat. And this is true in Moby Dick as well. The Pequod is a ship, and the whaling vessels that are launched off of the Pequod to attack whales are the boats. And this is something Ishmael will explain in depth. Yes. Um... Yeah, this 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 story is set a little bit before uh, the stuff that we've been reading about in Moby Dick because this is set during the Napoleonic Wars. It's all about people fighting the Napoleonic Wars. So eighteen oh five, the ocean has become the battlefield. I believe its oceans have become battlefields. Yes, you're right. Of multiple oceans. That should be. A, yes. I feel like that's of philosophical <laughs> importance. Yeah, no, that that's perfectly true. But yes, it's. Uh, the Napoleonic Wars, and it has... Uh, I, I just want to jump... Uh, do you mind if I jump right into a little bit of sort of this the style of the film that I really appreciated? Yeah, that's fine. I think we're basically not going to worry too much about people who haven't seen the movie trying to follow our discussion, because it's a good movie. You should go see it. Uh, I think people who enjoy our Moby Dick podcast would enjoy watching Master and Commander Far Side of the World. So just go yeah, out there think... and watch it. It's like two hours long. It's not that long. 
I think it's pretty. I think that's pretty true. I I will say I think we should just make sure that we you know uh, describe plot events uh, that we're talking about rather than just going oh yeah remember that one um, both because that makes for better podcasting and also if someone is you know I have definitely well, okay I, I really think you, you got to make up your mind is this podcast meant to be at all comprehensible to someone who has not seen the movie because if so we do need to summarize what happens in the movie in roughly the order that it happens and there's okay, a lot that... of things that happen in the movie like. I I could uh, I could find a better summary, right? I suppose, but the one that I, we've got is pretty detailed. Okay, um, yeah, no, that that's fair. I I would like it to be comprehensible to people who haven't seen, excuse me, seen the movie. Um, okay. I just you know I I really do think that this is this is a movie where the plot is really secondary to the texture. If you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean that's true. We can be we can sort of abstract it, but I think we should describe. At least the basic premise, which we haven't even done that. That's fair. Um, so I'm going to start by reading the very beginning of the plot summary, literally as it is, because I think that's kind of necessary. During the Napoleonic mm-hmm. Wars, Captain Jack Aubrey of HMS Surprise is ordered to fight the French privateer Acheron. Um, so there you go. There's the premise of the story. We got we have a sea captain in the in the Queen's Navy. Or not the is king's he... navy, right? It's the king at this point. I believe it's the king's navy. In fact, I think this is during the regency, so it is the king's navy, but with like a little asterisk. Sure. <laughs> uh, he has to fight a French privateer, and like I think people know what privateers are. They're like sort of legal pirates. Yeah, a, a privateer is someone who has a. Uh, I mean, typically a letter of mark was the the sort of legal element, but basically you're authorized by one uh, naval power to go after the ships belonging to a rival naval power, including their merchants and so on, but you're not actually, like, outfitted or equipped, uh, particularly, except for by pay, by the, um, by the country that you're working for. The, the result being that, yeah, you, you function a lot more like a pirate. Yeah. Uh, Astron- In fact, many of them... That's oh, sorry, go on. Oh, it's okay. What were you about to say? Oh, just many, many privateers were pirates. Uh, just pirates that decided to throw in with one country or another. Uh, a particularly famous pirate, uh, Benjamin Hornigold, who I like because his name is Ben, uh, famously got a bunch of letters of mark from different countries and then would swap his flags in order to justify whichever ship he was attacking at the time until the various navies uh, basically compared notes and all declared he had to die. <laughs> Uh, we can clip this out, but uh, it's not. You don't just like him because his name is Ben. You like him because you played him in a LARP once. I did also play him in a LARP where I made a series of terrible decisions. It was a lot of fun. That is how I found out about him. But I've remained fond of him in part because you know he's a Ben pirate. Huge jerk, to be clear, but a lot of pirates were. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's fun learning sometimes about like asshole historical figures. <laughs> Uh, yep. Certainly, I would say that's part of the appeal of a movie like this. I don't yeah. think Jack Aubrey is like not an asshole, right? He, Jack Aubrey is, I think, meaning I think can meaningfully be described as a good man in a bad institution, but one that isn't you know currently active in the world. So it's a lot more appealing to see his sort of struggles with that and his tensions there than it would be in an institution that is currently hurting a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, yes, I I do think that you know. That's one of the things that you kind of have to accept as, like, part of the enjoyment of a, a show, to show, a movie like this, is that, like, we are kind of going to be talking about, like, the struggles in the soul of a servant of British Empire, which is, like, yep. to the ex- you know, the British Navy still exists, and it's an evil thing to exist, right? 
Like, it doesn't exist in this particular form, but it's I not actually near- gone. I mean, yeah, but none of the, the social and structural institutions that Jack Aubrey is really interacting with apply to modern-day naval operations. Of course, like, yeah, no. I'm, I'm not saying that we should be trying to take some sort of, like, 21st century military analysis to this show, to this movie, rather. That would be totally ridiculous. I'm just saying that, like, um, you know, if there's a sense of, like, moral compromise in uh, liking a show about a cool Navy dude, like, that should apply to this as well, because it's not like it's a different Navy, actually. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm just thinking that the the use of child soldiers would pop up a, a bit more heavily for me if we were analyzing it on that level, basically. Yeah, no, I think that's true. But I, but I think that, like, that is, like, I think I think that on some level, the fact that the Navy is, like, a horrifying thing to exist and that it's about, like, you know, forcing children into situations that they really shouldn't be in. I think that idea is, like, in this movie, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not yeah, like... No, I, I agree. I don't think that the movie itself is, like, shocked by that critique. Um, and, and I don't no, think certainly. even... Uh, I, I don't think the books that it's based on either, like... Oh, the... yeah, no, the... It's it's the famous... Uh, the, the sort of tall ship, the men of iron in their ships of wood, or whatever the phrase is. Uh, you know, it's, it's famously a genre of sort of adventure story that kind of operates on, well, you know... It's re- these people could be really impressive, and we're kind of glad that this situation no longer exists. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of historical fiction sometimes has a little bit of that, mm-hmm. even sometimes in a maybe prurient tone, although I don't really think it's prurient here. Um, but, you know, a lot of historical fiction has that element of, like, isn't it... Aren't we glad that this social institution no longer exists, even as we kind of admire the things about it that are sort of noble and cool? Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly there is admir- admiration for the nobility of of the Royal Navy in this, in this movie. Um, we'll, we'll get into that, I'm sure. Uh, Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so the Atron ambushes the surprise, um, and it's basically a total rout. The Atron, like, uh, you know, deals heavy damage and isn't really damaged at all itself. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's worth here saying that it's a um, it's the Acheron totally ambushes the surprise, uh, you know, ironically for the name, and the way it's presented is just spectral. Uh, it yeah. it looms out of fog. It's barely seen. And something that will be important later is that uh, one of the uh, I think lieutenants, the um, so like the mid mid rank officers, is on watch and thinks he sees something. Uh, and it's early in the morning before everyone's gotten up, and he's trying to decide, should I call beat to quarters, which is a term I'm sure we'll use multiple times, so we should define it here, and it's just when the drum beats to tell everyone, get out of bed, go to your battle stations, we're all, you know, we're all prepared for the event. But it also means that the small amount of time you get to sleep on a ship is now gone, because you have been beat to quarters. So he's, has it, uh, Hollum, this, uh, this young officer who's like, Gotta be... Oh, wait, no, we learn he's a little older than he looks, but he's, he's still quite young. He's, like, my age. Um, he's, uh, he's hesitating to beat everyone to quarters for a shape he maybe saw in the fog. And, in fact, his, uh, the, the guy who's with him on watch ends up claiming Hollum just called everyone to beat for quarters as Hollum sort of freezes. Uh, this is just important as a specific thing because it'll set up a lot of the character drama to come. Uh, but when they do beat to quarters, it turns out that definitely was a ship, and it just fucks them over. Yeah, yeah. 
It's a very tense scene. Yeah, I, I think we probably don't need to go into the full details describing the beat by beat mm-hmm. bit of every other like scene like that. Um, just because sure. if we do that, we'll never finish the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. But I definitely think it was worth going into like the the details of like, am I going to call this order or not? Because it, it's basically what the movie opens with. Um, is the scene of uh, yeah of Hollem doing watch and like needing to make this decision and in the end not actually making it not being the one who makes the call um and also it's um what i really like about this and frankly about a lot of the storytelling in this movie is that it's communicating the structure of this british naval arrangement uh pretty pretty indirectly through focuses on sort of the material objects the clothing the little hesitations and interactions uh, and occasionally something is more spelled out through dialogue, but for the most part, it's trying very hard to present all this information that, frankly, an obsessive fan of this series uh, knows because they're the kind of person who pushes little boats around on a map. Mm-hmm. Um, but which the uh, viewer, and to be honest, I, myself, don't always uh, like have like a running model of what the organization of a British man-of-war should be, and therefore what's unusual versus what's, uh, you know, every moment. Um, what's what's standard is what I suppose I mean. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely gives you a real sense of, like, the particular social world of this ship. And also later mm-hmm. on, when they're pretending to be whalers, it gives you an impression of what they think the different social world of a whaling vessel is. Although, Yes, like, we do have whales. We have whalers. Yeah, there's a little bit of whale content in this. Um... Whale content that would really annoy Ishmael. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so Aubrey doesn't want to give up the chase of the Acheron, even though uh, the surprise seems really outmatched. Um, he orders the ship refitted at sea. Um, a different midshipman from the one we were talking about, Hollem, the one who doesn't make the call, this is a different guy, Blakeney, has his arm amputated. Um, there's some great, and by great I mean really, like, upsetting for me, uh, scenes of surgery in this movie. Mm, I'd like to talk about that, both because I think that uh, of all the elements in the movie, the uh, the gore is probably the only one that I'd sort of warn people away from the movie about, potentially. So I want to talk a little bit about how it's framed and how it's shown. So if someone does want to watch the movie, they've got a little bit of a sense of what that's going to be like. Yeah, yeah. Um, Please go ahead. I I should say the way that I got through it, because I'm very sensitive to gore in movies, is that I just, when we got up to a scene that was intense, I just paused, Ben watched through it, and then he told me when the scene was over, and I skipped to where he was. So uh, I have nothing to add, really, about it, these gory scenes, because I didn't see them, but... Yeah, I'll I'll try to be quick, but basically, um, there's three of these, uh, and um, in each of them, the movie finds some way to be very indirect about it. You do occasionally see, you know, I'm I'm personally a little bit sensitive to like the act of something slicing open skin. It, yeah, I don't like it, but um, it just gives me the heebie-jeebies. But in this case, there's actually um, in one of the scenes, there's a very sort of uh, wide shot where you're, it's as if you're a member of the crew who are all looking down on an open sort of bay in the ship where the surgery is happening so that there's sunlight. So you see some amount of gore and a little bit of someone's brain, but it's at a distance and it's really very quite abstracted by that. But all of the reaction shots on people's faces, and there's often framing with the gore just out of frame, is all very effective for ratcheting up that tension without directly having gore in scene. Uh, the first, um, injury, the one we're talking about, where uh, Midshipman Blakeney, who 
we should mention Midshipman Blakeney is a, is a child. Midshipman Blakeney cannot be more than like 15, and that's that's generous. Um, and he is getting his arm amputated because it broke and they can't set it uh, successfully and it looks like it's going to get infected. Um, and this in the bat, uh, sorry. So there's a lot of shots that where the frame of the camera is at the tourniquet just above the part of the arm that's going to be cut. And you can see the, um, uh, and we should mention this is the other main character of the movie, the sur ship surgeon, uh, Stephen Maturin, is like uh, Jack Aubrey's best friend and uh, foil uh, in the story and in the books. Master and Commander, the, the book series, is the Aubrey and Maturin series. Um, but we have him like leaning into frame and his tools going just out of frame. There's a lot of shots of like someone unrolling a canvas with a line of like horrible looking saws and knives and so on, and like a little mallet on the uh, on the canvas so that it rolls out. So all of the tools and again the material elements of the social world and what um, what it means to get you know surgery done on you in a boat in the British Navy in 1805 is made very clear by facial expressions, by tools, occasionally by a little splatter of blood, but the actual incisions are only seen at a distance or a remove, uh, in, in one case in a mirror which is being used for so that the surgeon can see what they're doing. Um, so the result is that I, I think that depending on your sensitivity towards gore, it, this might actually be watchable even for someone who's somewhat squeamish about it or, you know, finds it somewhat difficult to watch. Um, but I do think it's something to sort of uh, be careful with. I will say there's no, I don't remember any direct moments of incision or, you know, serious gore, even at a distance in that first scene, but it's still really intense. It's still really hard to watch because you've got this, I mean, this kid uh, who's, you know, on laudanum trying not to scream uh, and has like a, a leather roll in his mouth so that he can bite down on it and stuff like that, which all really sells the distress of the situation without purely going to gore. There's also no like quick jump cuts to a gory scene. It's always, it bit ratchets up the tension rather than uh, sudden gore, with a slight exception that during one of the gunfights, I think a bullet hole appears in someone's forehead, but it's, it's really like a I don't know, BBC historical levels of gore. I don't know if they've gotten better at that uh, that degree, but just basically a red circle. There's no uh, ugh, details about that, as opposed to the more distant surgery bits, which are really ramped up towards. Right, right. That all makes sense. Yeah, so that that's my review of the gore in Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. Not an area of my expertise, but I'll try. <laughs> uh, ooh. One detail I really love um, that happened a few times outside of gory scenes, so you got to see it, uh, was throwing sand on, down onto the deck so that the uh, the uh, planks in this cabin wouldn't become slick with blood. Yeah, that was intense. So that the surgeon's footage would still be sure. Yeah. Uh, I, def I definitely, there was at least one scene where, like, I saw them start throwing down the sand, and that was my cue that, like, oh, all right, they're about to do some surgery stuff, I better pause. Yep. Um, yeah, no, they're... <sighs> okay, so the ne next thing that happens is there's another attack from the Ateron, but uh, the surprise slips away using a decoy raft and, like, some tricks with lamps. Um, and uh, the surprise follows a Ateron south and rounds Cape Horn and heads to the Galapagos Island, where... Um, 
Okay. According to the summary, Aubrey is convinced that Atron will prey on Britain's whaling fleet. Meanwhile, uh, Matron is interested in the islands, in the Galapagos Islands, because he's like a naturalist. He wants to potentially, like, scoop Darwin. Oh, something this, um... Something this uh, summary leaves out is that there's a really intense scene while rounding Cape Horn. Uh, in fact, there's a number of intense scenes where basically uh, the crew is starting to get upset that they're going through this intense... I mean, it's the Cape It's Cape Horn. It's an intense space for uh, both uh, the, the general temperature getting quite low and heavy storms. And uh, someone's lost overboard during a... Uh, during a crisis on ship, as the uh, as a topmast comes loose uh, in heavy winds, while and the guy is on the topmast trying to reef the sail, which is to say, trying to tie the sail up so that uh, less of its um, less of its sort of surface area is catching wind to reduce the strain on the boat. Um, yeah, it's this really it's this really heartbreaking thing where like this guy is basically clinging to a piece of wood that's attached to the ship, and as long as it's attached to the ship, he maybe has a chance of survival, but. The people on the ship are having to cut him loose because they can't have this piece of wood thrashing around and tying the ship down, basically. Well, it well, it's specifically it's it's going to pull the ship over to that side because it's acting as a sea anchor. All the water pushing past grabs onto this top uh, this top mast that is um, that's still attached to the boat by its lines. So you have a scene where the officers basically have to take axes and chop the lines connecting the uh, wreckage to the ship or else the entire ship is going to be pulled sideways until it capsizes. Yeah, and there's a guy attached to the to the mast thing that they're cutting away, it's, it's, and he can see them. It's even more heartbreaking, though, because he's not attached to it. He's swimming for it, and there's people on deck shouting, Swim for the wreckage! You know, if you can get to that, we can pull you back up, because they don't see that the right, officers right, have realized the ship is right, tipping. that's how it goes. It's super... It's super yeah, intense. Yeah, it's just heartbreaking. Um, and isn't it, isn't, um, isn't Hollum, like, one of the last people to, uh, to chop the, the, the... Not, not quite. Hollum was climbing up the mast to help with reefing it, but he froze up partway up when he almost slipped. And it's very clear that Hollum's very anxious and is having, like, panic attacks. Yeah. And... This means that he's unable to get up to help the guy reef the sail. So after this, a bunch of the ship uh, of the men on the ship are like, well, the first time we saw the Acheron, which they're all terrified of because it's this giant phantom ship that always knows where they are and appears suddenly. Um, it's, you know, it's haunting them. And uh, so Hollum was on watch when the Acheron first appeared. Um, Hollum failed to help this guy off the deck. There's they're starting to think that Hollum's a Jonah. Yeah, and for what it's worth, the the movie kind of seems to believe in the concept of him as a Jonah, which is a little, like, messed up. Yeah, I don't like that. Because, like, okay, what a Jonah actually is, is, like, a person who has bad luck to be on a ship, and there's basically no choice but to throw the dude overboard, because, like, that's, I mean, that's what happens in the Bible, right? Is that Jonah, God is angry at Jonah, and the only thing that the sailors can do with him is to toss him overboard. Sort of apologetically yeah. in the Bible, uh, but yeah, they. Um, I believe in the. I can't remember. Maybe they draw lots. I should really know the story of Jonah since I'm doing a Moby Dick podcast. Well, we already had the chapter where we heard the story of Jonah. Yeah, yeah. But but yeah, no. I mean, I think that like it's 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 kind of fucked up for the the film to basically portray it as like, hmm, yeah, maybe some people just are so anxious that they're bad luck and you have to kill them. It's like what the fuck? Yeah. 
to, to be clear, what happens next is on the way to the Galapagos, the ship is becalmed. Uh, everything stops, and uh, it's becalmed until Hollum commits suicide by jumping overboard with a cannonball in his hands, while Blakeney, the, the kid who's now missing an arm and trying really hard to still be a good junior officer, is, like, on watch with him, which, oh, that's fucked up, too. Yeah, and then after he commits suicide... And after they have a, a funeral service for him, the wind picks up again, and everything is fine. Immediately, and it's just like, during the funeral service. It's just literally Ugh. like, wow, okay, human sacrifice works. Genuinely my least favorite part of the movie, <laughs> including, the, uh, including the intense uh, surgery scenes, is that moment where the wind picks up, and I'm just like, oh, come on. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I feel like it to me it's all sort of part of the genre past the genre like not genre pastiche, it's not a pastiche, but like this is just the yeah. genre, yeah. Like that's the sort of thing that's happened that happens in these stories is that uh, sailors superstitions turn out to maybe be true kind of. But like, yeah, it yeah, is it is I... sort of like wild that like this movie that was made in 2003 is pretty much suggesting like, hmm, I don't know, maybe some people just have to be murdered for the common good. Yeah, I mean, well, the thing is, there's there's plenty of murders that, are, plenty of movies that unfortunately endorse that. But it's specifically the idea that it's like, uh, I mean, even Stephen, the uh, you know Stephen Matran, the surgeon, is first of all, he's you know a lot of these situations, uh, and this is straight out of the books. The way that the story sort of uh, makes clear the various tensions on the captain Aubrey is by having him converse with his. Uh, technically a civilian and friend physician, Stephen, who um, is, like, uh, I think repeatedly called an anarchist for being anti-monarchy and anti-people uh, being ordered to get themselves killed for uh, things like that, while still being a, like, you know, loyal subject of the British Empire and trying to help them go forward and, you know, a naturalist and, you know, almost a pseudo-Darwin in this case. It's just all very, um... I, it's very much of its genre. Yeah. But uh, Stephen is like, surely you don't, be you know, you sound like you almost believe that he's a Jonah. And Aubrey has the line, like, there's there's more in, in you know, in the world than your book, Stephen, or something like that. And I, I want to throw something at the screen, except I'm watching on a laptop, so I don't even have room to, like, yeah. pitch my arm at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, oh, and one thing that we left out um, is that they, they, they close on the Galapagos Islands, but when they get there... They find some, the survivors of a whaling ship that was destroyed by the Acheron. And so um, Aubrey is like, oh, we have to go after them. They're going to be nearby. Sorry, Stephen. No time for you to explore the Galapagos. And Stephen is such a yeah. pissy little bitch about it. Um, yeah, that is the, the next beat is that they're, they're like, it's all about, you know, the wonders of the of, you know nature on the Galapagos. And we'll get to stop here for, you know, food and water. And Stephen is super excited to see flightless cormorants and swimming iguanas, both of which are like really obviously new species and he feels very special about being getting to be the one to name them uh and and then they're off chasing the acheron he's super upset yeah and it's it's just i don't know i mean i get i, I feel like i have a lot less sympathy for steven watching this movie than i did when i was a kid reading the books because he just has like the sort of outside of the military like somewhat more modern person viewpoint right and, or at least it comes across yeah. as more modern to a modern reader. Yeah. I mean, it's also that he's a naturalist and, like, he's involved in the development of, you know, this is early biology. 1805, biology as a term has been invented in the last 10 years 
I think, yeah, yeah, actually maybe more recently. Um, he's very much on the cutting edge of naturalism. He's, you know, it's the Galapagos and he's talking about the possibility of, you know, species, you know, developing in certain directions. And he's, he's clearly a transmutationist or is it, I think it's transmutationist was the term at the time, which is he believes species change and he explains this to little Blakeney and it's all, honestly, it's all very cute. Uh, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, the way that historical dramas often really want to ensure that the character who's supposed to be forward-thinking uh, is on the right side of all the scientific debates of the era, as seen from the present. Yeah. But I, I get it. You can't show him being like, well, I believe in, you know, um, you know, I'm very convinced by uh, Agassiz's theory of, you know, multiple creation or something like that, because that's not going to come across as the kind of character he's supposed to be, even if the kind of character he's supposed to be would maybe be more likely to be talking about that than the, at the time, French-associated and politically... I guess he's supposed to be kind of a political radical, so I can see him being maybe a vermist. Oh, maybe he's a fan of Erasmus Darwin. Uh, Darwin's crazy grandfather. And by crazy, I mean awesome. Sorry. That no, was... it's, it's all good. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it is, it, it, it's always funny, like, especially something made in 2003, they were probably thinking about, like, you know, real world evolution debates, right? Oh, wow, yeah. I hadn't even thought of yeah, that. Yeah, um, I mean, it, 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 it is, it is very funny to see, like, they really need you to know that this guy from 1811 was, like, all on the concept of evolution before it ever existed, like... But have the courage to make him a vermist. I'm so sorry, sorry that uh, they didn't make Erasmus him a vermist, Darwin ben. proposed everything comes from worms, and his theory was called vermism, and he wrote extensive uh, poetry about it, because <laughs> Erasmus Darwin was amazing. And he was a physician, if I remember correctly, who was uh, such a good physician that uh, polite company overlooked his uh, radical political views in order to have him around. So he's... Like, really, what I'm saying is that, uh, give me Aubrey Maturin, but we just replace, uh, Stephen with Erasmus Darwin. Sure. Um. <sighs> yeah, so. I mean, no, that, that would be bad. I, I don't actually endorse that. I just, he's cool. So, uh, we got back to the part where, we, uh, we skipped around the timeline a little bit, but it doesn't really matter. The movie's mm -hmm. kind of episodic. Um, so the episode where Hollum commits suicide because he's a Jonah happens. And then, um, mm. the next day, uh, one of the Marines is trying to shoot an albatross, but hits Maturin instead. And then oh, this right. is when another piece of surgery happens, although not immediately, um, because, uh, basically the bullet and a piece of cloth have buried themselves in Maturin and he needs to take them out. Uh, but it's a delicate operation, so they want to do it on land. Um, and, uh, so Aubrey takes him back to the Galapagos, and Maturin does surgery on himself using a mirror, and it's super intense, and I really don't... Yeah, it's... it's. I really sorry, don't, don't understand how I watched this in theaters when I was a kid, because I know that I did. I, I must have just put my huh. hand up, like I was basically doing when I watched it this time, but I know that I went and saw this in theaters, somehow. Yeah, I... I don't know. Um, it, it really is. There's only a little square of the screen that has the gore on it because it's what's reflected in the mirror. We never see the, uh, the actual like incision surgery anywhere but in that mm -hmm. mirror. Um, again, I think it's a really... It's, it's not just that it spares the gore a little bit, which I appreciate, but also I just think it makes for a really cool, tense, but a little bit distanced 
uh, experience, which for me really fits the historical genre, this kind of book where, you know, they are kind of about the, the blood and, you know, flying splinters of wood and the smoke of naval combat, but they're always slightly away from that. It's never trying to actually shock you because it wants this to be, you know, uh, an enjoyable experience, even if it's intense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, once he've do- he's done that, um, Aubrey's basically like, alright, well, we've we are not going to catch the privateer anymore, so you may as well do all the natural naturalist stuff you want to do on Galapagos. So Stephen basically goes hog wild with collecting specimens and shit like that. Yep, and I, I should note that uh, um, uh, Aubrey insists that this was just sort of a, a tactical necessity. Um, it you know they they didn't really know where the uh, Akron was. They did need more supplies. Then the ship's doctor was injured, so obviously we had to back off. Um, and, you know, it's, there's a very strong, and Steven's just like, uh-huh, you did this because you like me. Yeah. It... But he, he doesn't actually say that because that would be, you know, uh, unacceptable within the British Navy, uh, purely for admitting you have feelings for anyone of any kind. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I should say, I think we've really undersold the, like, the actual charm of Steven and Jack's relationship yeah. in this movie. It is, uh, like, there's it is a... good. Like, they, they mm-hmm. are, they are really sweet partners. Um, there's, uh, really lovely scenes of the two of them playing, uh, playing music together because, uh, part of why they have such a close relationship is that both of them play, uh, stringed instruments and they need the other for duets. So Steven spends a lot of time hanging out with, uh, Jack playing music. Um, similarly, there's, like, scenes where Steven is the, like, the outsider, but clearly Jack's favorite, uh, like, favorite interlocutor at, like, uh, you know, dinner in the officer's mess. Uh, there's a lot of officer's mess in this uh, series. There's a lot of, like, officers sitting around the table drinking tea from China cups on a ship. It's, it's... again, the social world and physical, and the material props of this ship, this show, that, this movie, I keep doing it too, this movie are really great, and I'd, I'd love to just talk about that at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, definitely agreed. Um, it, all the, like, visual stuff is just a real delight to see. Um... Mm-hmm. I, I remember you commenting early on, you're like, wow, this ship isn't big. And I really like that, how much they uh, gave the impression of how cramped a ship of the line really was. Um, like, how small the spaces are, how many people are on board, and therefore how little privacy and space there is in it at all. Um, as well as all the little, like, ways things are tied up and connected and built in together, and the sheer complexity of this, like, I think... Um, Someone in the movie actually says the phrase uh, little wooden world floating on the ocean, where everything has to be uh, in its place and structured together because you're doing something incredibly dangerous while also doing something moderately dangerous, which is to say sailing around harsh, uh, harsh seas in a wooden boat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating depiction. Um. Mm-hmm. Also, just like even like the little things, like those uh, those hourglasses that are like hanging, that are hanging from the roof, so oh, that they yes. stay precisely level up and down, so that they're able to you know count out a watch, uh, which also leads to a character occasionally like reaching out and tapping one of them when they think it's gotten stuck. Yeah, it's it's great that like they have these hourglasses that they're using to keep time, and that you can tell you can tell that they're not perfect hourglasses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's also things like, um, 
you know, just the workings of cannons become clear. The sailors are a an interestingly mixed lot. Like, they're really, they, they really did a good job, I think, with casting the extras to really feel like a, you know, body of uh, historical sailors. In the same way that Moby Dick, you know, has to list every single um, possible nationality um, that a sailor could come from in order to do its thing. This has that sense of, like, yeah, there's just... There's just a ton of different people from around the Empire in here, including Old Joe, who's kind of a problem, but also has hold fast tattooed on his knuckles. Yeah, that's pretty sick. Although I should say, you're making it sound like they're, like, ethnically diverse, which they're not particularly. I think they are all pretty much white, which is not the case, for example. No, there were... There were a few, uh, there were a few black um, sailors and a few others. I'm not saying it was super yeah. diverse, but there was some degree. Yeah, of no, you're right, you're right. There are some. It's not totally. It's, it's and it's the English Empire. Yes, it's, it's the British Empire that's being represented. Yes, I mean they're explicitly a um, press gang. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed on all points. I did, I just wanted to make it clear that like it's not like if someone was looking at this from a sort of 2020 perspective of like a diverse cast, you wouldn't oh, describe sure. it that no, way. No, no. I mean, there's there's all of what uh, one woman in the movie. I don't remember a woman in the movie. They're at sea the whole time. She... <laughs> <laughs> yes, but there's when they trade with the Brazilian. They, oh they right, come close to the coast of Brazil, and there's trade, and there's one woman in like the uh, canoes that have paddled out to uh, trade stuff and get handed a package of mail, and there's one woman that you see for like three seconds and jack smiles at her and then there's also a little portrait of his betrothed or wife and we're not sure where it is in the timeline but uh the you know the woman he loves back in england uh sophie and we see that in like a little cameo portrait in a in a locket uh on top of a letter for all of five seconds so altogether, uh, a woman and a picture of a woman have the same amount of screen time and in both cases it's about five yeah, seconds yeah that's that's correct um so in the summary, um, we were ta- talking about uh, Stephen finally gets his chance to explore the Galapagos, and he's collecting all these specimens. He had, he's he and like mm-hmm. he and and Blakeney and this other guy who is sort of behaving as his servant are coming with him and like carrying all these boxes of specimens, basically. They're little cages, and they stick the iguanas in little cages, and there's like solid minutes of scenes of them grabbing iguanas or feeding tortoises uh, foliage and walking over beautiful Galapagos terrain. Just really... Yeah. Ah, God, I I love all... This one time that they're on land in the entire movie, and it's the Galapagos, and it's beautiful. It is. It's really nice. Um, And then uh, they come over a hill, and they see the Acheron, and they have to abandon all their... specimens and like you know open all the cages and run back to the ship to tell jack like hey we saw the ataron and uh of course uh now it's time for the surprise to go into battle again um mm-hmm. yeah they uh they they're it's very like it's a very straightforward structure of like Aubrey does something for Maturin, allowing him to, you know, go to the Galapagos and pick these things up, and he's framing it as, oh, well, you know, we, we had to, it was duty. He's found an excuse within his duty to do this thing for his friend that his friend's so desperate for, but duty once again shows up, and he can't decide otherwise. And what's really, what I really like about this is that Stephen, uh, Stephen could have walked back slowly with the uh, the specimens and said, oh yeah, we weren't able to make any faster time, but we did see, you know, we saw the Acheron, so maybe we can catch it. But he knows what Jack would care about, and Jack just did this thing for him, so he realizes he has to, 
you know, gifts of the Magi it back to Jack. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's sweet like that. Um, you know, when I, when I when I regift things back to the person who gave them to me, and I say it's like gifts of the Magi, no one ever believes me. Jeez. Uh, well, the next time that uh, you have to run to tell me that the the enemy privateer is actually here when I didn't expect them to, I will make sure to be properly grateful and accept that yes, that you were gifts of the magiing it. Cool, cool. I, I, you know, that feels like a snow goon. <laughs> uh, a little bit, yes. Um, I, I just realized I don't know how many people will actually get that reference. It's Calvin and Hobbes, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that's just a Calvin and Hobbes joke. I don't, it's it a good is. one. Calvin and Hobbes is good. I'm glad that was a big part of my childhood. And yep. I'm glad it was a big part okay, of yours. Okay, okay. Okay, question. We have, we have Aubrey and Maturin. Which of them is the Calvin and which of them is the Hobbes? Oh, um, I I guess Aubrey would be the Calvin because they're both more like actual protagonists. And the other two are more like sidekicks. Mm. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. Uh, I, I'm going to dece- ce- cease and desist from this before I just get into an endless list of other characters to compare to, such as the Bird and Ernie or the uh, Frog and Toad. Yeah, let's let's not get too caught up in this. Uh... But on the other hand, Frog and Toad fight Napoleon. Oh, wow. Well, that would be a lot of fun. Frog and Toad fight Old Boney. So, um... So, the... Something, like, Jack realizes because he's looking at a picture of a stick insect that... It's not a picture. Or, it's, oh, it's right. The they have, stick they have insect. an actual got a few specimens. Right. He's looking at an actual stick insect that Matron has and is like, oh, camouflage. What a good idea. So he decides <laughs> to camouflage the surprise as a whaling ship uh, in the hopes that Ac- Acheron will try to capture them. And then because they've been like lured in, they'll be at close range and the surprise will actually be able to attack. Um, and it yeah. works. And uh, they're able to fire on a- Acheron. Yeah, they get a they get a broadside, but they only get one because as soon as they start firing, the Acheron, which is you know coming in with cannons prepared and so on, it's not as though they're they are prepared to hold the whaler below the waterline if they fight. They're the Acherons demanding that the uh, this whaling ship, I think the the Siren Siren yeah the Sirene something like that. They they paint something over the surprise on the uh, on the uh, stern so that the Akron doesn't realize that the boat that they've been repeatedly chasing is in fact this boat right here. Uh, but they fire one like heavy broadside up close, and the idea is if they can take out the mainmast, uh, the Akron will be more or less dead in the water, um, and the surprise will be able to move out from outside of the uh, easy cannon, you know, broadside uh, sort of arc of the Acheron, which is super outguns them, and has a hull that they can't penetrate. Actually, we should... Well, well, I, I would love to talk about the ship designs in a little bit, but the, the short version is the Acheron is uh, paralyzed in the water, and the surprise is ready for the boarding more than the Acheron is ready for to repel boarders, and uh, the surprise is also, and I think this is important, has a lot more people on it than a whaler would because a military ship has like a company of marines and all of its you know men are prepared to fight and so on so the you know the surprise is capable of overwhelming the Akron despite being about two to one outmanned yeah. because they have that element of eh 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 surprise yep, yep. and that comes up they make the when there's like yeah. a scene where um Jack, like, is basically giving a pep talk to the entire crew before this attack. 
And uh, he's telling them that they have the element of surprise, and it's very cute. Yeah, every, everyone laughs and claps. And, and then the entire lecture hall stood up and stood up and applauded. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's it's a perfectly reasonable, like, speech before battle. And uh, they all really, you know, it's very clear that Jack is like, you know, he is beloved of his men. Yeah. Like a father to them, you might say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all that classic stuff. They'd follow him into the jaws of hell, which since Akron is literally the jaws of hell. Uh, yeah, you know. yeah. And so they're able to take it. There's a really chaotic battle scene, um, which is just very striking. It's really good. I My favorite moment in this battle scene is when they're, the enemy have started to get their cannons, you know, online, primed and ready. And so the um, some of the men who have remained on the surprise to repel bo- counter borders are now uh, attempting to directly assault the can, like swing across and assault the cannon room of the, I say swing, but there was a little swinging, but not a lot in this uh, boarding scene. There was more running over the wreckage between the two of them of the main mast that's fallen, um, which super cool. Yeah. Want to be clear, um, but the the remaining team that was on the boat, which is led by Blakeney, so they're a literal child with one arm, is leading them in this. Has to counter assault into those cannon rooms that that part of the ship, Cannon Bay. I can't remember what the term would be for this. Uh, a, a lower deck that has the cannons on it in order to prevent them firing and ho- and holding the surprise below the water line, thus sinking her. Um, and one of the guys who runs in, and this is just a moment that absolutely got me, the cannon begins to fire and he just sticks out his hand into the space between the firing pin and the, uh, and like the, the cannon. Mm-hmm. So he's just got the firing pin, like, going thunk, into his palm, and the look on his face, that the actor really was doing well, because the look on his face is just this immense amount of, I can't believe I just did yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that was really amazing. And and then I think he's standing there for the entire rest of the fight. <laughs> like, because he can't go anywhere, his hand's stuck in this pin that has a decent amount of weight behind it, and I assume he's, like, got a pretty bad bruise there now, if it hasn't, like, stabbed him. But also, uh, as long as he's there, the cannon can't be used. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Uh, it's, it's a good fight. A number of characters who were at least, like, moderate, like moderately to significantly characterized just absolutely just die suddenly in the fight. It does not pull punches. Yeah, there's a lot of death. Um, and uh, then... Uh, Aubrey is informed by the ship's doctor that the French captain is dead and is given the captain's sword. Um, yeah, while the captain is like lying there on the um, on the surgical table, and the doctor, who really does look like you know French Stephen in a lot of ways, yeah. at least in in terms of his like style and presentation, hands him the sword. Yeah, and that's that's sort of the the indication that he's taken the ship. Uh, so they yeah. repair them and. Um, Aud- and uh, Aubrey, like, kind of chooses uh, one of his, mid- not midshipmen, one of his lieutenants um, to become the yeah. captain of Ataron now that it's been captured. Um, yeah, and this is this is the one that he's been sort of, uh, over the course of the movie, sort of putting in more and more important uh, command roles, up to and including uh, leading a really important part of the fight, which is there's 30 whalers... Uh, trapped below, uh, like captured and below, and prisoners below decks on the Acheron, um, who were taken off of the uh, ship that they, of the whaling ship that was sunk. Uh, so the um, 
a strike force gets sent down into the bowels of Akram, which is a much larger ship than the surprises, to free them so that they can have another 30 hands during this fight. Yeah. But obviously this is kind of a commando raid in the middle of this larger fight. And so the guy that he put ends up putting in charge of Akron, whose name completely escapes me, uh, is... Uh, put in charge of that sort of little mission and it's it's very much framed as like you know the final proof that he's ready to command his own ship or at least to take this prize back to the harbor yeah i think it's it's pullings first lieutenant pullings mm, yes i think you're right yeah um the 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 cast is uh listed very much as the uh, at by their rank on the Wikipedia page, mm, which is yes. entertaining. Uh, it's, um, it's, and then, uh, you know, um, so they, uh, they kind of split up the ships and Acheron is sailing away. And wouldn't you know it, Stephen Matron happens to mention that the doctor of that ship had died months ago. And that causes, uh, Jack to realize, oh, that guy who gave me the sword and told me the captain was dead, that was actually the captain pretending to be the doctor. Uh, so we get, we gotta change course and go intercept the Acheron because they might have, you know, like a secret mutiny brewing on board. So I actually, I thought about this, and I'm actually, I don't think that's correct. Uh, I was wrong. I, that was my theory. But I think what's actually happening is that if they get to Valparaiso before the um before that deception is discovered the captain is going to be ransomed off with the rest of the crew uh what at a much lower value uh. and he's basically and the captain has been established as the anti-jack aubrey he plays the tuba um yeah that's right <laughs> he's uh He's apparently good friend. He was good friends with the doctor well enough, certainly, to take his place and like portray him. Um, he was, uh, you know, he's presented as this incredibly competent naval mastermind, given that he's able to go one for one with Jack Aubrey. And early on in the, uh, early on in the, um, in the movie, in fact, Stephen says that you know he's like. Uh, you know, you're really rattled, and Jack Aubrey's like, yes, I just don't don't understand how this captain keeps doing this to me. The Acherons, you know, it haunts us. And and Stephen's like, yeah, he fights like you, Jack. Yeah, it's it's very much like, yeah, he's he's met his match, and he's not going to defeat this guy by the end of this movie. It's going to continue on somehow. Yeah. Um. Uh, but so he's chasing after to make sure that this captain is not, in fact able to slip away and presumably uh, acquire a new ship and, re- you know, return in Far Side of the World 2, side further. <laughs> yeah, and uh, of course, once again, Stephen is missing his chance to go hang out on the Galapagos, uh, but at least uh, the bird is flightless, so it's not going anywhere. And Yep, that, that is the line. And then, uh, you know, they, they play some music and then the end of the movie happens. It's very, it's very, like... And so it continued. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently the um, uh, the medical procedure. To, sorry, I just noticed something because we're looking at that list of of uh, list of um, midshipmen uh, and uh, and able seamen because you mentioned that there was this list. And I was like, oh, I wonder if any of them have their own Wikipedia pages. The answer is no, but there is a recurring characters in the Aubrey Matterin series Wikipedia page, which is extensive. Yes, yes, it is. Um. And and hold fast, guy uh, Joe Joe Place uh, Abel Seaman Joe, um, who uh, is sort of the he's really used early on to show how good of a um, a surgeon Stephen is because Steve, what Stephen does is and this is a really cool procedure that's apparently historically 
real, which is uh, after he gets a serious head injury and a bullet is put uh, into his skull, um, he gets the bullet removed during this uh, surgery that like the whole crew is watching until they get chased off by an officer. Um, and what has to happen is uh, a, a coin is flattened by the ship's smith into like a thin circular plate to be inserted under the skin over the once the bullet is removed over the wound, so as to relieve the pressure, uh, relieve the pressure on that part of the skull that is now um, weak. I think that's what's happening there, uh, relieving the pressure on the brain. But uh, it it means that throughout the movie he has this like X shaped cut on his forehead with a slight you know bump under it where the coin is uh, and it gives him a very along with the hold fast tattoos it gives him a very uh like almost like overly intense like ah yes an able seaman who has been through hell yeah look. yeah he's 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 an intense guy to look at yeah he's also the one who starts suggesting that uh hall uh a jonah as well yeah. so yeah incidentally apparently this film combines elements from 13 different novels <laughs> oh, so th- how many more couldn't they fit in? Uh, yeah, I think there's dozens yeah, no, of those that makes novels. Sense to me. So there's a lot. I look. I'm I'm really in favor. I think there. I think there should be many books about uh, boats with tall masts and uh, you know cannons happening. I'm I'm in favor. Nice boardings. Yeah, yeah. It's great. It's great to see people board a vessel. It's great to see. Ah, it really is. It's great to see everybody, like, being awoken from their hammocks by beating to quarters. Yes, yes. <sighs> yeah, um, mm. so the boats in this movie. Yeah, right, you wanted to talk about the, the boat ships. design. Please, go right ahead. Or the ships. Yes, so ships. first of yeah. all, <laughs> yes, yes, the boat, the boat design is perfectly acceptable. They're just boats, but the ships... Ah, the ships. This is a movie about ships, and it's a movie famous for have, and it's a series famous for having a truly beloved ship, and that being Stephen uh, Jack, obviously. But um, <laughs> uh, I had to. And puns are a part of the movie as well. Yes. Jack likes making them, and Stephen hates them with a passion. Yep, it's good. It's cute. Uh, yeah, that there's there's a scene where Jack goes through far too much effort to make to get Stephen with a pun, and Stephen's response is to look like a startled owl and say, "A man who would pun would pick a pocket." Jack. Yeah, it's such a stuffy little complaint. It really is. Uh, oh, little Lord Fauntleroy over here doesn't like puns. Mm. <laughs> but uh, um. I appreciate anything that presents, like, as ridiculous as it is, anything that presents puns as the, like, active, vibrant art form that I know them to be, rather than the work of dried-out wordsmiths, um, I appreciate it. You like it, you like but, it when people who make puns are portrayed as, in some way, vital, even if that vitality is being used in a sort of aggressive, unpleasant fashion, is what you're saying. Yeah, I... I just like that the person who doesn't like the pun is the butt of the joke for once. <laughs> For once. Uh, but ships. So obviously the surprise is a lovely ship. Like, again, I really love the degree of sort of complexity. The, um, you know, obviously they know what they're, they know who this movie is for. There's like, 
every possible sail. It's great. Uh, like, they have scenes of the sails just unfurling or being reefed. Uh, scenes of, you know, people moving around in the uh, below decks. And uh, it's just, it's there's uh, plenty of scenes of repairs on the ship or, mm-hmm. like, painting of the outside and so on. And I just, I love all of it. It's all great. Um, it's, it's all, it all looks good, too. Uh, when the ships are, you know, uh, for, you know, unfurling sails and setting out, you can see the wind catching in them. Uh, I, I love it. I love all of it. And the surprise is just a charming boat. It's a uh, charming ship. It's, um, if I, if I were better at this and, uh, more in tune with, uh, with my, my grandparents, I would be able to name the, like, specific category of ship. I, I think she's a frigate. But um, I'm I'm bad at that. Uh, but no, she's she's a lovely she's a lovely ship. But she's also kind of small, and she's like her smallness is really emphasized in a lot of the scenes where just all the crew is on deck and it just fills her. Or especially when she's in contact with the Acheron, and the Acheron is like the surprise is a little bit like portly. Like she's not she's you know a, a British ship from this era. She's a little bit wider than you'd expect sometimes looking at say modern ships. Whereas the Acheron is long and thin and low to the water while also being huge. Uh, and the effect is that the Acheron comes across very, uh, I mean, very spectrally. They keep calling it a phantom ship, and uh, it's very impressive, and it's, like, painted a very dark color. Um, it's called the Acheron. That's that's a lot. Yeah. Um, I also uh, really like that they have, as a, as a major element of the, uh, of the movie, a model of the Acheron to show its design, and that they can figure out how to correctly fight the Acheron. And the way that they get this is that, like, the... Someone was in... Someone who was in Boston during the piece watched the Acheron being constructed in dock, uh, because it's a Yankee-made ship. Yeah. Uh, she's a Yankee-made ship. I should be consistent about it. <laughs> uh, even though the Acheron's an evil... The Acheron's an evil ghost, and the surprise is a lady, but they are technically both a she, <laughs> if we're going with that ridiculous convention. But, um... And so, you know, there's this whole section of talking about, like, look, the Acheron is this new design that's very low and sleek and has a very narrow uh, beam, but has, like, so it's heavy and low to the water, but still quite fast. Uh, and her, and part of this is that her hull is very thick, uh, lower down, which is why the surprise's early cannon fire failed to do anything, because her hull's basically uh, proof against the size of cannon that the surprise has, at least long enough for her to get off enough broadsides to turn the surprise into mincemeat. Um, right. And I just really like the sort of, and the discussion that happens around there where Jack's like, well, you know, like any other ship, if we can get up and uh, rake her across her stern with a broadside, we'll go in through the cabins and, you know, there's no protecting from that. There's no, the hull won't help against that and that'll uh, clear her decks. And everyone else is like, yes, the ship that is faster than us and has more cannon and has been, you know, able to pursue us repeatedly in terrifying ways, we will get behind her and rake her across the cabins. This is going to happen. Yes, Jack, totally. And he's captain, so he gets to uh, he gets to say we're doing that. And it does end up working, but not after, not until, uh, not without significant uh, changes in tactics. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Mm. Spe- speaking of which, the um, the the crypsis they use, the sort of camouflage as a um, as a whaler. First of all, I really like that um, uh, the stick insect is specifically called out as a phasmid, which is you know in order to fight the phantom ship, we must become the phantom ship. <laughs> mm. uh, 
But I also liked, and this is something that is going to be mentioned in Moby Dick, but hasn't been yet, uh, but they have a, in order to pass as a whaler, one of the most important parts of their work is to put a, is to start a fire in, like, a furnace at the center of the ship, because, you know, they have one, um, and just throw a spare a spare line and, and sort of tort up rope on the fire to create a ton of black smoke so that it looks like they're processing oil on the ship. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was cool. Um, yeah. There's also a lot of uh, Jack, like, telling the men that they have to, like, be sloppy and messy and, like, don't do it well like you would if you were in the Navy. <sighs> Because you're now you're pretending to be oh, whalers now, and I was like, yes, "Hey, yes, they... <laughs> yeah." I mean, look, Ishmael's responding to apparently at least a historically fictionally attested uh, real prejudice against whalers. Yeah. Uh, the um, you know, there's a bit where a uh, I think a, a, an able seaman is told, "No, no." Let her luff. We need to let her luff to look like a, uh, a whaler. And there's like a crew. So the escaped whalers are like on the ship <laughs> with them, giving advice about how to pass as whalemen. And it's just you have to imagine they're being like, "I don't, I don't luff. You're pinching. I don't luff." <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I mean, we may have covered this in a previous episode, but luffing is when your sail is not taut enough to catch all of the wind, and so it sort of flaps lazily. And pinching is when your sail is in too tight. Uh, and some of the wind, wind spills around the edges, and the edges of the sail, at least on a, on a modern ship, I don't actually know if the signs are the same on a square-rigged ship, will uh, vibrate a little as the wind sort of uh, slips around the edge there. Uh, though pinching can be much harder to see than luffing, which is pretty obvious. Uh, so luffing means you're not using the wind to your best advantage, and is generally considered very sloppy. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, lots of good owns in on whalers on this in this movie yeah yeah everyone has to wear uh like big um big outfits and, and woolen caps in order to look less uh uniform and you know uh prepared for sailing and <sighs> yeah well i think that was pretty much this movie oh there was one last thing i wanted to talk about just because uh, we, we touched on it a number of times but i'd love to talk about just um or at least if you're interested, uh, talk a little bit more about sort of the, just the physicality of the sets and the, and the stuff in the movie. And so we've talked about how this is sort of an episodic film. It's, you know, the plot isn't the crucial thing. There's, you know, character relationships. And, uh, one part of that, and that is, I think the same basic effect is there's a real sort of generational or like cycle of life thing in the feeling of the movie where like, you know, some people are promoted, some people die in the attempt, the, uh, you know, the ongoing churn of the Navy continues. And so a lot of it is focused on giving you a sense of what life on this ship is like and what it means to be on this ship. And, you know, that's where all of Jack's sort of internal tension comes from is between his preferences and what he has to do as a captain in order to maintain naval order. Mm -hmm. And I think that the props and set construction are a huge part of this as well, because in order for any of that to make sense, you have to understand the physical constraints of the life they're leading and the world they live in. Yeah, you really do get the sense, I mean, you know, we talked about this already a bit, I think, but of this, like, in enclosed world that just exists on the mm -hmm. water. I think one thing that's notable is that the only, like, time that they come on to land during the entire movie is on the Galapagos. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's never, they never go to mainland at all. Yes. 
Yeah, and it's very much framed as like going back to a mainland would mean giving up the chase for the Acheron and sort of admitting defeat here, which Jack is totally, uh, totally against. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, the Galapagos is is an okay uh, cheat on your uh, on your sailing because it's an island and it doesn't count. <laughs> yeah. Ah, but yeah, no, other things like this are just things like scene, a lot of scenes of the physical preparations for a battle or the physical acts involved in uh, setting sail or repairing the ship. Um, has a lot of process genre in it where you just get to, not for long, but you get to watch someone just doing something competently for a little bit where they, you know, yeah. uh, and you know, it, it, I would love, I'll be honest, I would love a movie that didn't even have the, you know, the Acheron plot. And like, I'd love a number of movies that were just you know, you know, what the Aubrey Matterin series is. Life and, you know, occasional, you know, horrible violence on ships in this Navy, just among the physical objects, talking a lot about the, the minutia of sailing and how it functions. You, I really like that feeling of being submerged in that setting. You want something that's a little more slice of life and episodic. You want, like, an actual TV show of this. You know, I... I would probably really enjoy a TV show of this if it gave the same degree of dedication to, like, that physical presence. If it was willing to, you know, and developing these character arcs out, I think you could really do, you know, basically indefinitely. Because you really can just bring in new characters, develop old ones, they die or they graduate off the ship. And, the cap, you know, basically you have a few core people who stay on the surprise indefinitely. But, yeah, I would... I would love that. I would love to run that as a tabletop RPG. I would love to play in that as a tabletop RPG. I just, yeah. it's, you know, it's I a think thing it's that, worth, I think no, it's sorry? worth mentioning that these, this narrative structure is kind of at the heart of Star Trek. Um, yeah, I, I don't think you're wrong. Not to say that, like, not to say, Ben, if you want an episodic show about people <laughs> on a ship, just watch Star Trek. But like, I do think you'd really enjoy parts of Next Generation for reasons that are not yeah, no, related I've, to this genre. I've watched next when I've enjoyed next generation. When I've watched next generation, I've enjoyed it, including with you. That's been lovely. So you know, maybe I should do that sometime. I think that part of it is that while there is science fiction that scratches this like physically embodied world itch, mm -hmm. uh, it's much easier for historical fiction to pick up on all the little elements of it and have that really coherent feeling. Whereas, like, okay, there are some science fiction series and movies, and you know, or animated series and movies that do manage this. Um, and a more a recent example that's just very straightforwardly also about uh, vehicles being chased by vehicles uh, in an elaborate back and forth until ultimately some characters die, some survive, and some move on uh, is Mad Max Fury Road. Oh yeah, for sure. And there's a lot of great like visual while, stuff in that. Yeah, and there's a lot of just sort of little things in it that don't necessarily direct. The term reality effect is actually one I'd like to use here, which I think is from Barthes, but um, it's the idea that all of the, the filler in a classic novel, all of the little things about the world that don't actually matter to the plot, narrative, or characters, but just serve to fill out the space in that world, are actually vital to giving the effect of a world that they live in, and therefore to help create the space that social world can be developed in. And obviously you can... You can go overboard with this, and there's novels I've read that, uh, you know, plenty of realist novels or science fiction novels that get obsessed with minutiae that don't, that they don't invest with this meaning the way that uh, shipboard life, I think, for me at least, has almost an inherent meaning. Like, yes, this is how ships are sailed, therefore it's inherently, like, characterizing and valuable and thematic, and therefore I have an endless hunger for it. I will just 
absolutely uh, take as much as I am given. Yeah, one hundred percent. There's there's definitely nothing. I definitely uh, like get your desire for specifically ship content. It's not the same thing as spaceship content, <laughs> even though I think a lot of spaceship yes. stuff is very good and like fulfills a similar need for me. It is. It is. I look. There are. There are spaceship series, and maybe Next Generation is one that definitely has that feeling for me. I think it's really just that I feel like the aesthetic of Star Trek is very sleek and yeah. I mean, classically techno battle. No, it definitely is. Whereas that. here, here, all of this junk and just stuff that's lying around, and you know the ways they make do and the devices they use, because it's all stuff I understand at least in theory. I mean, I don't actually know how to rig a square rigger ship. Like I could not sail the surprise or have a you know uh, i probably could not be an able seaman on the surprise without significant training but i understand a lot of the like principles and functions maybe if i you know invested myself in, in next generation lore and how the ship fits together that sense of reality and sense of sort of embodiment would happen but it just happens immediately with a ship thing like this and part of that is just really good cinematography and part of that is just that i am well primed to go Oh, you're hanging the the hourglasses off the roof so they say um, they stay vertical and can actually keep time. Oh, that's really cl- that makes sense. Oh yeah, I I want to turn that hourglass over. I want to poke yeah, it. Yeah, you you really have the the desire to like walk through this movie as if it were like a a set or a museum and like touch the stuff. Yeah, ab- absolutely, one hundred percent. And I like seeing other people touch the stuff too. Mm-hmm. I, li- I like seeing them interact with it, and yeah, I just, I really, in many ways, I cannot be objective about the movie's, like, narrative, because I'm just like, who cares what the narrative is? I get to be on a boat! That is, I mean, I think that is one of the purest ways to appreciate <laughs> fiction. I, I have absolutely no criticism for that. Ah, oh, God, this is, also, it's definitely hitting super hard in that respect, because I didn't get to go sailing this summer, because uh, the... The uh, university sailing club was closed for uh, the pandemic, so yeah, I'm missing boats. It's very sad that you were not able to do any community sailing this summer. It's a, it's a. I stoop. It's a very charming like program oh. that your university has set up, where like people who are like university members, right, can pretty much like take sailing boats out. Yeah, it's. Yeah, you need to. You need to. Prove that you're capable of sailing the boat that you're going to take out without crashing it. And you do have, there is a membership fee, which isn't super cheap, but is like, compared to owning a boat, not expensive at all. Um, And especially these little boats, which actually aren't apparently that expensive to keep up. You know, pretty expensive to acquire, obviously. Uh, But you need to have somewhere to keep them over the winter. You need to store them. And the university, you know, does all that. And they have a fleet so you can go out and sail with other people or take people who, you know, don't have a membership and don't uh, have that, you know, credential that they give out. And it's all really lovely. These are, to be clear, these would be boats, not ships. They are quite small. Um, You know, they are sailing, but they're, you know, many of them are about the size of a rowboat. I love them all dearly, even the dumb little ones that are kind of terrible. Tex. Uh, I have a lot of um, nostalgia for the worst, but also first, small boat that I learned to sail, uh, like type. Obviously not an individual, because they just have a fleet of them. But anyways, the, um, yeah, no, just, it would be nice to be on it, to go sailing, and I definitely got some uh, sailing energy from this movie. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that your sailing energy... (sighs) 
you know, uh, reserves have been somewhat filled again. <laughs> yes, I have set, I have, un- I have stepped off dry land and onto a ship in order to refill my fresh water and uh, resources in sort of an inversion of the Galapagos yes, Islands. Yes, that's right. Uh, all right, so I think that should pretty much do us. Uh, do you want to say the mm-hmm. our, our our sign off, or should I? Uh, what do we sing for, man? Uh, a dead whale or a stove boat? <laughs>